Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the more someone identifies as a white Christian, the more likely they are to hold racist views. That's one of several devastating conclusions Robert P. Jones draws from his research on public opinion, religious history, and his years in the seminary and as an active member of the Southern Baptist Church. We'll talk with Jones about his call for a racial reckoning in American Christianity. First, though, we'll check in on the latest efforts by Facebook and Twitter to deal with election misinformation on their platforms. That's all next on Forum. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Facebook will ban new political ads in the week before the November election and remove posts that try to discourage voting. The announcement from CEO Mark Zuckerberg comes just days after the social network announced it's taken down several accounts linked to the Russian group that was active in spreading misinformation in 2016. Twitter also suspended accounts linked to the Kremlin-backed agency. For more, we're joined by Shira Frankel, reporter covering cybersecurity for The New York Times. Welcome to Forum, Shira Frankel. Thank you for having me. And if you, our listeners, want to quickly register your reactions to these latest developments, you can now on Facebook or Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Or, of course, you can call 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. So, Sheriff Frankel, first, this announcement that Facebook will ban political ads in the week leading up to November 3rd. Why are they doing it? How effective do you think it'll be? Well, we've known for a while that Facebook is debating exactly this course of action. About a month ago, they started holding meetings um, nearly daily. They've been holding meetings, I should say, for months, but about a month ago, they became daily. And they started to ask themselves what they could do to really stop the spread of disinformation. And I think that this is one sort of good step that the company agreed on. They thought that last minute ads run by the candidates would be difficult to fact check. And by making sure that no new ads came up, they could sort of, you know, they can ensure that ads that were already there were accurate and stop new bad information from coming out. Well, uh, the question, I think, is how effective a week before the election would be. I mean, one listener writes, isn't the week before a tad maybe too late? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one would argue that um, ads could be fact-checked all along and very strongly so, and that misleading ads could be removed and maybe that would be more effective. We also have to ask, what about after the elections? I know Facebook has been discussing continuing a ban on political ads after the elections, but we don't know yet what what's going to happen. And so I think that, that there's a real question here of whether this is too little of a gesture too late and whether Trump, who has a massive outreach on Facebook, even without ads, can really continue to deliver whatever message he wants, even if he's not allowed to actually publish ads. 
Well, it's clear that efforts to use social media to spread misinformation is alive and well, both from domestic groups and foreign groups, as you've reported. We've learned this week that Facebook and Twitter have taken down or suspended accounts linked to the Kremlin-backed Internet Research Agency. Can you tell us what Peace Data is? So Peace Data is a website that um, in roughly, you know, March of this year, it started publishing articles, which initially they kind of just seemed to span a range of progressive issues, everything from the environment to current events in China and Iran. And they seemed to kind of, a lot of them had strange spelling mistakes. A lot of them sort of were just a couple paragraphs long and didn't have a point. But as we got closer and closer to the elections, these ads kind of became more focused. And most recently we've seen, um, sorry, we've seen articles on that site, which really focus on sort of um, Biden not being a great candidate, that Democrats should perhaps consider a write-in vote. And so it seemed like they were kind of pushing this agenda of wanting people on the left not to vote for Biden as president. I see. So basically trying to weaken Democratic support for Biden and Harris by basically putting them forward as people who would not support more progressive causes. The other thing that was so interesting about this was that it hired Americans to write these articles for them. What can you tell us about that effort and whether these freelancers knew they were doing it for a Russian-backed group? Right. I mean, that was that was interesting. And that's something we've seen the Russians do in other countries, hire locals to write articles for them in a way of really, you know, why mimic the way that a local person speaks when you can hire someone from that country to do it for you? In this case, I think they really took advantage of the pandemic and the fact that a lot of people are out of work. And they found, you know, hundreds really of freelancers who wanted to write for them. Um, I spoke to, I think, five or six at this point, And it was interesting. Some of them just answered a job ad. Others, you know, emailed this website directly and offered their work. But Every single one of them kind of had this shared experience where they received this enthusiastic email back saying, yes, we'd love you to write for us. And then as the correspondence went on, they began to notice that they were being pushed to write a very specific kind of content. And so, but even then, maybe it was a little hard, as you have shared in your reporting, to turn down uh, some, some money when you're also in a situation in a pandemic when work can be hard to come by as well. Um, well, this listener tweets, why aren't House Democrats calling Zuckerberg to testify immediately? I mean, in terms of concerns about these Russian efforts, do you think Democrats or, or members of the House Congress should be doing more around this? Well, we have seen uh, Mark Zuckerberg appear in Washington more this year than he has in the past. And obviously people who work for Facebook in their Washington office do speak regularly to members of Congress. I, I guess my question is, what would it achieve for Mark to go and, and, and speak to Congress? Is it is it because they're actually going to pass legislation? I mean, they've had years at this point to try and do something since the 2016 elections. And we haven't seen much done. We haven't seen many regulations passed. We haven't seen any new laws really enforced. And so while I think sending, you know, Mark or the, any head of a Silicon Valley company to Washington is a good step, what would be an even better step was to actually start writing some laws into the books that would enforce rules around what social media companies should and shouldn't do before elections. We're talking with Shira Frankel, a reporter covering cybersecurity for The New York Times, about new evidence that Russia is again targeting Americans with misinformation online ahead of the election. How was Facebook and Twitter able to detect these posts as being posts that were linked to Russian trolls, essentially? So Facebook received a tip from the FBI that said that this was a strange website. It had um, it had interesting sort of people writing for it and that 
the FBI had looked into some of the metadata behind the website and, and basically believed it to be Russian. And then Facebook, which has an amazing kind of bird's eye view onto the internet through their platform, was able to delve deeper and connect it back to the Internet Research Agency. And that's the group, if you remember, that back in 2016 targeted Americans with an influence campaign ahead of the, the election between Trump and Clinton. So this is a well-known organization to Facebook. It's a well-known organization to the U.S. government. And being able to make that connection is what allowed Facebook, Twitter and other social media companies to very quickly remove Peace Data and all of their affiliated accounts. So then it doesn't sound like Peace Data had very much traction. They didn't. Um, the reporters I spoke with, the journalists I spoke with who wrote for them said that they thought their articles were getting seen maybe dozens at most hundreds of times. So I think Facebook was really able to act quickly and remove this before it gains a lot of traction or a wide audience. And in part, it sounds like with help from the federal government, which is kind of interesting, I guess, given the fact that we've had some recent headlines about the Trump administration's top intelligence official, John Ratcliffe, basically trying to suggest that, that China is more a risk than, than Russia and election interference, and then also, of course, suspending giving in-person intelligence briefings on election security to Congress. How should we understand that partnership, um, given yeah. these recent <laughs> maneuverings by Radcliffe? It, it's hard to square those remarks with what we're hearing from, um, I, I mean, I've, I've spoken now to several FBI agents who work on this. I've spoken to the social media companies, Facebook, Twitter, Google. None of them agree with that assessment that China is spreading more disinformation aimed at the elections. Um, all of them across the board say that in general, they're not seeing a lot come from foreign countries, but what they are seeing is certainly more Russian in origin than Chinese. Well, Lottie tweets, Twitter cares, Facebook is dangerous, and I think QAnon and Russia could be working together. Twitter has done more, hasn't it? Um, so the way I think of this is that Twitter has applied more aggressive labeling to Trump's posts. Twitter sort of came out with a statement early on saying that irregardless of who you are, whether you're an average person on Twitter or the president of the United States, if you tweet something false or misleading, they're going to label it as such and they might even remove it. So that was a very clear kind of stance. The difference here is that Facebook doesn't do that to the president. It says if you're the president, if you've got a political, if you're running a political ad, it's not going to apply. It's not going to it's not going to clearly kind of say that um, this is misleading. It's it, they've created separate categories, I guess, is the way to think of it for the president. And that's upset a lot of people. So can you talk about right now just how sophisticated or powerful these efforts by this internet research agency that was so active in 2016, how they are now? Because I guess the relative ease with which they were caught, even if it was sort of a more sophisticated operation that drew in Americans, is that suggesting that maybe they're not quite as strong as they were? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think what we're seeing is that the Internet Research Agency and, and more broadly, I would say Russian government efforts, from what we've seen so far, aren't as effective or as widespread as they were in 2016. I think the platforms are really aggressively looking for them. They've got whole teams who do nothing but look for exactly this kind of activity right now and remove it as soon as they found it. And that's a really big difference from what was happening um, back in 2016. I think I think one way to look at this is that in 2016, the problem was foreign election interference. Now it's domestic. Now the problem is what Americans are saying to other Americans and specifically what you know elected officials are saying to their constituents. That's not something we were thinking about a lot in 2016. And unfortunately, that's been a huge source of misinformation in 2020. And so, you know, we all remember after 2016, CEO Mark Zuckerberg really 
I don't know, for lack of a better word, kind of kind of shrugged off the accusations that that Facebook played a role in the in inter influencing the election, essentially, right? Do you feel like there's been a real change of heart in him that has really guided this company now to try to take it more seriously? Or do you think it's more just concerned about its bottom line and not wanting to face this criticism again? Well, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is an incredibly rational person and is guided by logic above all else. So I, I don't know if I'd say he has had a change of heart as much of a change of thought. And I think that he's now seeing that as a company, if they don't do better in these 2020 elections, they're going to suffer. They're going to suffer from regulators. They're going to suffer from their audience. They're going to suffer from a PR perspective. And so he's made this a top priority. We've heard from people across the company that he's every single day holding meetings on this. He's directly involved in decision making. He's He's gotten his hands in there. And that is very different from 2016, where even though he was the head of the company, he was only very loosely kind of overseeing what efforts were being made to protect the U.S. elections in 2016. And it sounds like, too, he's gotten some pressure from his own staff. Yes, very much so. I think internally, Facebook employees are very upset at how they're they're publicly seen, and they know that this is a real sort of trial by fire for them, and that if they don't do better in 2020, if there's a perception that Facebook as a company isn't taking this seriously, a lot of them have said it's, it's going to be hard for them to continue going into work. Shira Frankel, a reporter covering cybersecurity for The New York Times. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to Ariana Prail for producing today's segment. We'll be moving now to talk with Robert P. Jones about racism in American Christianity. Stay with us for that. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.